Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Maddox. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. You have a problem with it? Build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Maddox. All right, Howard Beck is here joining me on uh, election the day after Election Day. I guess it still is kind of Election Day. Election Week, Howard, in America is what <laughs> this has become, right? We're we're now you know, part of the never-ending cycle of being glued to CNN or Fox or MSNBC or whatever it is that you, you watch out there. But uh, I, I've had my TV on for the better part of 24 hours, Howard. I don't know about you. Um, I did turn it off to go to sleep. I thought that was the healthy thing to do. Uh, I got up. I resisted the urge to turn it on again immediately, but I caved after about twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I would say this not to you know we have other things to talk about, of course, but you know players driving you know the black vote, especially during the NBA's restart. If it turns out that Joe Biden wins uh, the presidency, you know. I, They'll deserve some credit for it, right? Like, I mean, if, if if voter turnout is the key to all this, and it sure seems like it's going to set some records when it comes to voter turnout, uh, how players participated in this process, I think, will be influential. I think a lot of players can feel good about themselves and what they did uh, during that bubble to to push voting to the forefront as hard as they did. Yeah, and we'll never be able to quantify that, of course, Chris. Right. We'll never know exactly what the impact was. And there were so many different forces at work in this particular election cycle across our country. But 
the the uh, rise of athlete activism, and, and in the NBA's case, maybe the strongest of any of the leagues, well, w, the NBA and the WNBA both, uh, but the, the platform that they have and the way that they've deployed it over the last several months was incredible, and, and absolutely that, that, that's meaningful. Absolutely that helps. You know, you, you'll never know how many more voters there were because of it, but listen, at a minimum, we know that a bunch of NBA arenas became voting precincts because – NBA players pushed hard for it and got that commitment if, from the arenas that hadn't already. They got more commitments in the wake of the Wildcat strike in the bubble. So, mm. you know, at a minimum, NBA players contributed to making sure that more people had access to a voting precinct amid a pandemic and, and, a, and a, a safer, socially distanced place to vote. Uh, and in addition to that, of course, you know, the LeBron James is more than a vote organization trying to, you know, re-enfranchise voters and, 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 and bat, battle back against, you know, the disenfranchisement of voters, um, especially in the black community. All, all of that has had some kind of impact. We'll never know the extent, but for sure, NBA players have played a big role in this election. Yeah. And, you know, even among their own ranks for voter registration to go from, what, 20% in 2016 to the high 90s in, in this election cycle – uh, I wrote about this this week. I mean, you know, LeBron's more than a vote campaign, turning out 40,000 plus poll workers, you know, getting people registered nationwide. I mean, it's you're right. It's not something you can quantify, but I, I'd be shocked if, if if what they did wasn't significantly impactful. Um, I, you know, I think they can be proud of what what they accomplished, regardless of the outcome uh, of this race. Uh, all right. Let's jump into uh, some of the more basketball centric topics here that we're here to talk about. I want to start. With next season, whenever we get to next season, sometime later this week, the NBPA will vote on a proposal to restart the season on December 22nd. The broad strokes of this proposal are a 72-game season that ends in mid-May with the finals ending sometime in late July. That proposal would allow the NBA to fulfill its TV contracts. That's important. And get back on a regular schedule for the following season, which is very important to the NBA. The Athletic is reporting that players see a December 22nd start date as inevitable. Uh, Howard, a Christmas start once seemed a little pie in the sky to me. Now we may have basketball on Christmas Day. What do you think of the latest developments? Well, you know, the, the NBA telegraphed what it wanted months ago when they sent over the plans for the NBA restart in the bubble. <clears throat> and it, as part of it said, and we'd like to start the 2020-21 season on December 1st. Now, there was immediate skepticism and immediate pushback by Michelle Roberts of the NBPA saying, you know, look, December 1st, it's going to be too soon. And it's not that the NBA, the league officials thought, oh, we could absolutely do November 1st as they started, you know, the, the, the summer plans. It was more, I think, the signal that, listen, <laughs> we do not want a permanent shift of the NBA schedule. And this is before the restart had happened. This is before we saw ratings crater in the the you know uh, you know you know in, over the summer where the NBA has never played and where it's going up against baseball and family vacations and then eventually football, um, they always wanted I think to get back on schedule as soon as possible and that's what that December first date signaled to me whether it was realistic or not. So December twenty second to December twenty fifth range is about where you would expect to end up if you gave an overly optimistic, rosy December 1st start date 
realizing that it was probably going to have to be a little bit later than that. But you and I both know, Chris, and I think fans of this league know pretty well by now how important December 25th is both as a just a, a tentpole day for the league, five games. They own that day. They, they've got the full attention of sports fans that day. Um, it's, it's the unofficial kickoff, kickoff of the season. You know, the season starts in late October, but a lot of fans don't really start tuning in until Christmas. It, it's got a lot of weight, and it, it also has a lot of monetary value. So I don't think we should be surprised that they're pushing that hard for that. I think the biggest surprise, Chris, is how much opposition there has been by the players because the vast majority of them have had three months off minimum and some of them, uh, many, much more than that, and, you know, the eight teams that didn't make the bubble have been off for basically nine months already. So, or will have been by then. Um, I'm surprised at the intensity of the opposition from the players or, or the resistance to starting. I, I get it. Like if you're the Lakers in the heat, if you're the Nuggets and the Celtics, the teams that were in the conference finals, I get it. It's, it's not ideal, but every dollar that's at stake, every dollar that the NBA says they could lose or recoup, half of that belongs to the players. So this is not some like negotiation like we see during collective bargaining battles where uh, the NBA comes to the players and say, we need X, Y, Z. And the players say, well, what are you giving us back for it? No, this, 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 this literally is a shared uh, loss or a shared uh, uh, opportunity to recoup money. So this is not an ask of the players. Yeah, it's their bodies. It, it is their, you know, their, their well-being that's at stake when you have a shorter turnaround. But what the league is asking is of the players as their 50-50 partners to get them back on track, to uh, make as much as they can in what will still be a season with a lot of losses because they can't have fans in the building to start, and maybe at all. And – it is, a, and it is also the you know in the players' best interest to get back on a normal NBA calendar that allows them to get on a completely normal one next season. Because if you finish by the end of July, now you can start again in October the way you normally would, and and things are back to normal. If you push this to to MLK Day, as players were pushing for, or at least some factions were pushing for, well then you're you're throwing off the following season too. And you're losing a bunch of money from starting a month later. So I don't, I don't understand where the players are coming from on this one, especially because unless you're the Lakers and Heat, the vast majority of players should, should be like, okay, good. We're ready to go. We haven't played in months. Let's go. Yeah, I think the fundamental shift in all this was when the NBA realized that fans in the stands was not going to happen. And yeah. that may just be for the first half of the season. That may be the entirety of the season. But I do believe, Howard, if we were in a different place – in this country, and I'm not talking about the nonsense, you know, being spotted about how we're turning the corner. We're not, you know, cases are going through the roof, and whether you think it's a, you know, life-threatening illness or not, you are simply not going to have states which have the power here open up arenas or allow large crowds in arenas while those case numbers are still on the rise. So, given the climate, the NBA, I think, realized and said, "Look, we've got to maximize the number of games we play for television revenue, and that means starting." Uh, on Christmas Day, and I'm with you. I, I don't. I understand the Lakers 
and the Heat are going to get pretty well screwed. They're basically going to have a few weeks off before they have to start, you know, kind of mentally and physically getting their bodies right uh, to get back into training camp and then physically go through a grind after experiencing not just a long playoff grind, but a long playoff grind in extreme circumstances. So I do have sympathy for the Lakers and Heat to a slightly lesser degree, the Celtics and the Nuggets, but you can't make a decision about the NBA based on the feelings of two or four teams. You know, the Knicks, the Hawks, like all these other teams that have been sitting around since early March, like they're ready to go and they should be ready to go. So, you know, I I think you almost have to say, sorry, LeBron, sorry, Jeannie Buss, sorry, Pat Riley, sorry, Jimmy Butler, but this is kind of the way it goes for the overall health of this league and for the benefit of all the players. And by the way, LeBron has talked a lot about looking out for the rest of the players in the league, and he's done a lot of things towards that end. Like I would think making sure his guys got paid and sacrificing whatever he has to sacrifice physically to get back out there on the floor, that's in the best interest of most of these players. So I think this happens. I think that the overwhelming number of players will vote for this Christmas week start, and we're back in training camp and ready to go in early December. I agree, and and that's what I have believed from the minute this discussion started when there was this pushback and Michelle Roberts goes on the record saying, you know, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, uh, you know, concern and, and pushback from players. They don't want to do this. And all I kept thinking, Chris, was who th- this this is a this is a players union. This is a pl- this is a players union with 450 guys. The Lakers and Heat make up at most 30 of the 450. And if you want to throw in the other 30 players from the Nuggets and Celtics because they have a shorter turnaround from being in the conference finals, you still have the vast majority of players who it's in, in their interest to get going soon and with sooner and, and, and who do not have the shorter turnaround. And I just felt like as powerful as LeBron is, as powerful as his buddy Chris Paul is as, as president of the Players Union, those are not the voices that are ultimately going to matter. It is a, it's a Players Union, one, one player, one vote. LeBron gets the same number of votes as everybody else. And I don't think he can talk the Warriors and Timberwolves and Cavaliers and Knicks and Hawks and all the teams that haven't played since March into saying, no, 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 for my benefit or for my team's benefit, we should put this off another month. I mean, that, I, don't, I don't think that that was probably the message. I'm, I'm being facetious and oversimplifying the way that discussion would go clearly, but that's how, what it would break down to, and it just doesn't make any sense. The majority of players uh, would have more benefit than detriment by going and getting going sooner. And we're, if we're being honest, Howard, we're really only talking about the Lakers the last week or so. And that's largely because, you know, we heard from Danny Green and there's been some chatter about the Lakers. Plus, they're an older team with guys that are in uh, the early to mid-30s as part of that core. We I haven't heard anything from the Heat about pushback when it comes to this restart. I know I yeah. haven't heard anything from Boston about pushback and Denver's yeah. a bunch of 12 year olds too. So like, they're really young. Like they can, I mean, they'll, they'll bounce back. Like, I mean, Miami, especially Miami's probably like already in training camp. Like they just, they probably took a week off and went right back to it. So it's really only talking about the 12 to 15 guys on the Lakers at this point that are, that may be the most disinterested in returning yeah. this quickly. And I don't think you can, I look part of my surprise in a way, came because, and I said this last week, in interviews with me and with others, Michelle Roberts has take, kind of taken 2020 off the table. And I was using that as a baseline for you know any kind of thought process about when the NBA was going to restart. But as this has gained momentum, and as the NBA has made it clear that this is the best way to maximize the revenue, the losses that we, meaning the NBA and the players, will suffer will be catastrophic. 
Uh, I that I just believe this was this was going to happen. It, it can't. The ball can't stop rolling, for lack of a better metaphor, uh, without because just twelve guys or fifteen guys don't want to play. It just can't no, work and, that way. And, and I'll, I'll just a couple of quick footnotes on this, Chris. Um, one is no matter when they get started, even if they do get started before Christmas, and you know then can lock in that much more money in the seventy-two games and what that provides in terms of regional TV contracts, um, everything else. We know they're still going to start without fans in the buildings and that there's no certainty that, that we'll have fans back in the buildings at any point in the, in the coming season. Um, that, that's, that still means hundreds of millions in, in losses from having uh, empty buildings. So that's one caveat, just not to be a downer, but the second caveat um, is we're going without a bubble. The NBA, we all rightly praised them for what they pulled off in Orlando, but I've said all along, you know, in some ways that was the easy part because once you establish the bubble, as long as no one violates the rules, as long as everybody does what they're supposed to do, you've kept out the virus because that's what it was designed to do. The league will not have that, uh, you know, that, that context to work within anymore because they're going back to home markets or regional markets or something like we don't know exactly how it will work, but it's not going to be a bubble, which means the risk of, the virus disrupting the season is going to be much, much higher because people are back living with their families, people coming and going people, you know, we've seen it all across the country, forget sports, just day-to-day life, day-to-day, you know, just citizens in this country and around the world, you know, COVID fatigue sets in and people start going back to their old habits, their old routines and the virus is spiking. We are in the midst of this massive wave. And so, um, I just think we should throw up a lot of, of, of caution signs that as the NBA gets started again, you know, it's, it's, it's the right thing to get going sooner than later. Um, it, it's impossible to, to create another bubble and ask players to do that for an entire season. But it, it means that they're starting the next season with considerably more risk in terms of the virus. And, you know, um, I, I, we don't know what what that will mean for them, and then how the, how the league will handle that either. Uh, there, there's there's still a, a lot that they have to to figure out. Yeah, plenty of it. That's a separate conversation. Will a non bubble environment work when you have you know not only the traveling that goes on with the NBA, and part of this proposal is that they will reduce travel by twenty five percent through a variety of different ways. But you have guys in close contact with each other. You know, as you mentioned, guys go home, in and out. Uh, there's a real high potential for significant spread, whatever that means. You know, there's a. I think there's a real high possibility of that happening during uh, a non-bubble type of season. But hey, look, it's still good to be an NBA owner, Howard, because we did just see the Jazz sell for 1.6 billion dollars. Like that, <laughs> that number. I don't know about you. That number kind of jumped out at me. Like the Utah Jazz. I love Salt Lake City. I love Utah in general. Park City, one of my favorite places to visit. But for the Utah Jazz, during a pandemic, going into a season, Howard, where every NBA owner will tell you you're going to lose money or at least not make anywhere near as much as you did, to sell for $1.6 billion is pretty damn impressive. Um, did That $1.6 I didn't see like the itemized receipt. Did that come with like uh, like rights to some shoreline on the salt on, on the Great Salt Lake? Did it come with like uh, a, a couple of ski resorts in in Park City? Like, there's got to be more to it than just you know uh, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert's uh, contracts 
and the uh, whatever, the Vivint, whatever, home something arena. There's got to be more. There's got to be – I'm thinking ski resorts. I'm thinking beachfront on, on the Salt Lake. It's There's got to be something because the Jazz are in the NBA's – or the U.S.'s 30th media market. And <laughs> – it goes for $1.6 That's wild. So it tells me owners, I, you, not that we're hearing, well, we are kind of hearing some bellyaching from owners because they've conducted you know, layoffs and some of that happens during a pandemic. But if you want out owners, there's a golden parachute awaiting you. You will, <laughs> wherever you are in the NBA, you will be able to make money uh, off, your, off your investment. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, the big story this week, Howard, in Pennsylvania is the vote the second biggest story 
is the 76ers, a close second, right behind what's happening in Pennsylvania with the voting. Uh, the Sixers will start next season with a leadership structure that looks very different from what they had last season. Days after the Sixers hired Doc Rivers, they gave him a new boss, hiring Daryl Morey, recently of Houston, as the new team president, Elton Brand, the incumbent GM was given a new extension as well. Howard, let's start with Daryl. Uh, there were some, like Tillman Fertitta, the owner of the Rockets, that thought Maury might take some time off after leaving Houston. He basically took a long weekend after taking <laughs> and getting the job in Philadelphia. Your thoughts on the Sixers' change at the top? Uh, so when Daryl announced or when it was decided that he was going to move on, However, that news came out. But when Daryl decided to move on, um, and there were certain you know reasons listed, all of which I thought were were valid. I mean, he'd been going at it for 13 years with the the Rockets. I think 12 as the GM. Um, he he works as hard as anybody in this league at that job. Plenty of people do. I'm not saying he's different in that regard, but it's a hard job. And the, you know, and, and Daryl is incredibly aggressive. And you know, we know he's as, as uh, transaction happy as as anybody in the league. Um, and they had kind of maxed out. You know, I've said for the last couple of years, I thought the Rockets had pretty much plateaued, and especially once they made the deal for Westbrook, um, which had the fingerprints of Fertitta and James Harden all over it. And, and I always thought not so much Daryl Morey. It didn't seem like a Daryl kind of trade at all when you consider, uh, you know, what Westbrook is and the, the picks they had to give up and the fact that Chris Paul is frankly a better player and had a shorter contract. Um, none of that made sense. I, it, like Daryl walking away in the wake of, of – where the Rockets were in the wake of another disappointing end to their season. Um, obviously the Hong Kong tweet last year and the tensions that that created with ownership, all of it made sense. I really did think Chris that he was going to take some time off and chill and catch his breath and spend some time with family. I knew he'd be back. I was certain he'd be back, uh, but no, I did not think it would be after, as you put it well, a long weekend, but I will say this too. When that news happened, of, of Daryl first stepping down. I said on a couple different shows, wherever I said, if I'm any owner in the NBA, aside from a, a handful, if I've got Danny Ainge, I'm fine. I've got Sam Presti. I'm fine. But 25 teams in the NBA should throw their guy overboard in a heartbeat to grab Daryl Morey. And that's what the Sixers did. <laughs> they threw Elton Brand kind of overboard. They gave him a life raft and they're towing him. Um, and they gave him a, a nice contract extension, so he'll be fine. Uh, and this is, by the way, this is not a reflection of Elton Brand. This is one, I believe, uh, that the Sixers rightly read the situation, which is you had a chance to get a top five GM. You do that every time, just as they pounced on Doc Rivers, too. And Elton Brand, you look, it was weird. If you go back, remember all, all the way that unfolded? Like, they, you know. They had gone all these different directions, and they, they, you know, they weren't sure what they wanted to do. They finally elevate Elton Branch to that position. He never really, you know, worked in a front office. It was it was all new to him, and they had this kind of uh, this structure where it was kind of unclear who really held the power in that front office. It was all very very strange anyway. So it's not like they were settled there. It's not like they just threw a veteran GM overboard to hire Daryl. Um, but they were the place that made the most sense in the short term. They were the place that I thought would hire Daryl a year from now, you know, or, or after the, after next season, I, I thought it would happen, but I, I just didn't think it was going to happen this soon, but kudos to the Sixers because I think that's the right way to run a franchise, Chris. Um, identify great talent, whether it's a player, a coach, a trainer, 
an equipment manager, <laughs> I don't care who, sports science folks, analytics folks, and the GM. If you've got the opportunity to hire somebody great, you go and get them. And uh, it, you spare no expense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was definitely handled bizarrely, the whole process, because I hate using that word when it comes to Philadelphia, but it, it starts with Elton Brand effectively consolidating power within the organization when last season ended, and now it ends with Elton as what exactly? And I think I have some question about who carries the biggest bat in that organization. Um, you know, Daryl is the team president, but Doc Rivers was hired first, and Doc Rivers <laughs> in the past has been – you know, he's been a, a team president as well, or whatever his role was uh, with the LA Clippers. Uh, he has been, he's a heavily influential guy. He was with the Celtics organization. Is he just the head coach? Is he someone that, you know, if you're Josh Harris or any of the ownership people in Philadelphia, is Doc Rivers the one you listen to if there's a dispute over what happens with personnel? I, I think the dynamic there is interesting. And, and I think Elton, they gave Elton an extension too. It's like, well, what are we doing here? Are we signing everybody yeah. to like the equivalent of a five-year deal? And I like Elton Brand. And I, I've said this before, Howard. Elton, like, you make your own bed here. You put yourself in this position by letting Jimmy Butler walk away and then watching Butler take his team to the NBA Finals, losing J.J. Redick and not replacing with anybody that can shoot and watching shooting become a major problem for your team. So, the mistakes that were made along the way, Elton Brand has to have ownership of and deserves any kind of fallout as a result of it. But I don't know yeah, about you. I, I, think mean, the I think the dynamic's weird in that organization. That organization's always been a little weird. They've been, I don't even want to say low-key dysfunctional. Um, it's, I think just the fact that they've had just enough success and, enough, and they've been, they, were kind of, they were fun for a, a couple of years there before they became instead a disappointment um, is kind of... Uh, obscured the fact that they've always been a little dysfunctional. Like they, they're, they're, they've got multiple owners who always have their hands in everything. They had a front office structure where it was never clear who was in charge. Brett Brown had no authority whatsoever as the coach was constantly being undermined from above. Uh, and that kept him from really doing what he needed to do to, to keep Embiid and Simmons on track. And so like they've just, they have not been uh, great in terms of chain of command and being on the same page. All that said, they are aggressive, they spend, and they have now spent to get some really talented people in really important positions, specifically, and most importantly, Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey. Now, Doc and Daryl, I don't want to overdo the Celtics connection, but they do go all the way back to Boston, where Daryl was assistant GM under Danny Ainge, and Doc was, was still coaching there. They overlapped. I don't know how strong the relationship is, but those are two guys who are, I think, um, really great communicators, and while we while they might both be used to having to used to having the authority or, or being the the ultimate uh, authority on on basketball personnel matters, Daryl I've always, has always struck me as being a, a collaborative type, and I don't think like Daryl doesn't have to be the biggest. Uh, voice in the room he, he he's an important voice and it's, it's going to be his decision he's team president but i don't i don't he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who needs to dominate the room i think he and doc can can collaborate well i think the key then is going to be does ownership now that because i always say that the, the the best way to run a team if you're an owner in this league hire the best people the smartest people understand that you the owner do not know 
anything about basketball. You may think you do, but you don't. Um, hire the best basketball people and then get the hell out of the way. Well, they've done that. They hired Daryl and, and Doc. Now they need to get the hell out of the way. And that part of it is, is still an if. But I'm, I'm not that concerned about – like I think this is the, this is the most definitive <laughs> authority structure they've had in years, Chris. Doc yeah. will run that locker room it much more authoritatively than Brett Brown did. It, that was just not Brett Brown's strength. Doc's got a big personality and, a, and, a, and a, a big influence. Like guys will listen to him. So that takes care of that. And Daryl's got the cachet to run that front office the way that he needs to. Yeah, he does. And I, the only thing I get leery of is when a coach is hired before a general manager. Yes. Because the general manager didn't have time to or didn't have the opportunity to hire somebody whose philosophies are in line with his own. And maybe Daryl Morey, if Doc was available, he would have jumped on the chance to hire him for all the reasons that you articulated. The the voice in that locker room, the, the presence he's going to have, he will have in that locker room. But it didn't happen that way. So that, that always gives me a little reason for pause. One last thought on the 76. I want to play you some audio from the press conference. Uh, Daryl and Doc were both asked about the Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons dynamic. Here's what they said. I think the absolutely can work together, but I'll, I'll turn. Doc's been here a little longer than me. I'll turn to him. I mean, he's thought even longer about how they can work together. Yeah, I have no doubt they can. Uh, again, I haven't been in the, the lab with them yet, uh, but I know they can. Um, I think we have changed the narrative. They haven't won yet. Uh, not that they can't win. I, 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 the can't should be taken out. Uh, but there's a lot of combinations of, of players around the league that haven't won yet, um, you know, and, and, and there's just two other ones. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to, to the challenge. So, Howard, at least they're saying the right things right now that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are two guys that can win together at a high level. Uh, Daryl takes an interesting approach to the rosters. He likes to think outside the box sometimes. When you see Daryl Morey, and now you see Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I, no matter who was in charge, Chris, no matter who the coach was, no matter who the GM was, my belief was given the way that the Sixers season went, strange season, strange season for the whole world, of course, but also, you know, Simmons gets hurt and that impacts them in the bubble. And now you can't properly assess things. You needed to at least commit to one more year with those two together before you break up a tandem of two all NBA caliber players to, you know, perennial top 15 to top 20 players who are young, not even quite in their primes yet, still pre-prime. And you don't just give up on that, no matter how many uh, bumps in the road you've seen. And especially if you were changing coaches, you always give the new coach the chance to unlock that potential and figure out the right chemistry and to give the, a chance for the front office to retool around them. Maybe that, you know, they just needed a better supporting cast, whatever it may be. You don't pull the plug with Daryl and, and doc. Now they're together all the more. So doc, you know, doc is going to want a chance to uh, figure out the best way to deploy these two and see if he can unlock again. And that the potential of this, this superstar duo and Daryl's going to want the chance to, to reformat the roster. Can they move, Al Horford's contract, Richardson's contract, Tobias Harris, whoever it may be. So, of course, you know, you're, first of all, Daryl in his opening press conference is not going to come out and say, 
uh, yeah, you know what? This thing is uh, stuck in a ditch. We got we to gotta trade Ben Simmons. I'm going to go get James Harden <laughs> instead. <laughs> I mean, that would be fun, but I don't think we're ever going to hear a press conference like that. Uh, so to an extent, they're saying what you would expect, but I also think it's the, it's the realistic approach. Um, got to give these guys a full, normal-ish season with the, with, the, with the new coach and his plan and with the new GM and the way, you know, and however he can, can help them by restructuring the roster. Yeah, I agree. Um, he, he's certainly not going to come out and say, I'm looking to move off either one of those guys at this point. And I would also say, I, I don't believe for a second that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are anywhere near the top of the Sixers problems. They were to remind people again, you know, one bouncing ball away from potentially beating the eventual champs just a year or so ago. So, Yes. They were good enough to be on that level back then. They just need the right pieces around them. Unfortunately, Philadelphia decided to reshape that roster by letting Butler go, by letting Reddick go, and that cost them. If they can get Butler and Reddick type of guys, or at least guys that fit around Simmons and Embiid, they're going to be fine. I-, I would not, unless you were getting a King's Ransom in exchange for Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, and I'm not even sure James Harden at this point is that King's Ransom. Like, James Harden is on the other side of 30 now and is still a great player, but there's far more longevity, I think, in Simmons and Embiid uh, to make a deal like that, at least at this point. So I keep them together, and I think Daryl's going to keep them together at least from the start, at least for one more season, uh, and see what he has uh, with that group. All right, let me finish with uh, your backyard. And the most interesting team in the NBA to me next season, Howard, is the Brooklyn Nets. The Nets, we know, have a talented roster headlined by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. They hired Steve Nash to be the head coach. And now they have fleshed out Nash's staff with some proven hands. You've got Jacques Vaughn, who was already coming back. And now Mike D'Antoni, who has a long history with Nash. And Ime Udoka, a rising coaching candidate himself, will join him on Nash's staff. Before I get to that dynamic, Howard... Does it say anything to you about the state of Houston that Mike D'Antoni just ran away to go be an assistant and Daryl Morey was a free agent for like, you know, again, a long weekend before he took another job there? Does that because that my antenna popped up pretty quickly when I saw Mike D'Antoni assistant coach. Not that Mike would take an assistant coaching job anywhere else. Obviously, his history with Nash plays a big role in that, but he left he could have come back to the rockets on some kind of deal as the head coach he chose not to daryl chose not to took a new job very quickly i i wondered a lot about you know what those two thought about what was going on in houston when these moves happened yeah i mean my my gut tells me that we have not heard the complete story yet of this final year of the daryl morey mike d'antoni Houston Rockets, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Tillman Fertitta partnership, right? Like, um, there's more than meets the eye here. Now, we knew there were some – look, the, 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 the waters were murky anyway because, you know, Tillman Fertitta had made a big deal uh, about not extending Mike D'Antoni a year ago. A lot of that, you know, was in the newspapers, was in the media every day, Fertitta versus Warren Legary, uh, Mike's agent. And so – there was already like the table had been set or you, 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 every sign pointed to Mike leaving after this past season. So that part wasn't that big of a surprise. I also think trading for Russell Westbrook made his job harder, a lot harder. And I don't mean, you know, Oh, it was another big personality or anything like that. I just mean that just functionally 
you traded a guy in Chris Paul who was a great shooter from both deep and mid-range for a complete non-shooter in Westbrook who needs the ball in his hands a lot. Like, I just – I was never a fan of, of that – particular move anyway just as a basketball matter and I I do think and there's every indication in the world and there's been some reporting along these lines too that that trade was more about what Tillman Fertitta wanted and what James Harden wanted than it was about what Daryl or Mike D'Antoni wanted and both those guys are gone and that doesn't mean I'm right uh, to to believe these things are all linked but I think that there's some linkages in all of this I I think I think that's part of the picture it's part of why they're gone I think that, uh, you know, Fertitta in- inherited both of them uh, when he took over as owner. And, you know, his he, he's clearly pretty impulsive, pretty self-assured. His book is something like Shut Up and Listen. <laughs> so uh, I, I, think, I, I think that, you know, probably it's not been um, the, the most pleasant environment there. Uh, I, I, I'm not surprised that, that those guys are leaving. And I'm not saying it's all on Fertitta, but I, I think that that's uh, an element there. And also, look, again, I, I'm not the only one in the league who thinks, you know, or, or who covers this league or, or from, you know, folks who work in the league who thinks that the Rockets have plateaued and are now, yeah. you know, going to start the, 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 the slow decline. The, 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 you're not breaking through. You're not knocking off the Warriors, Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets, you are at best fifth in the conference, and you're not trending upward because you got two guards in their early 30s who are going to erode and no cap uh, maneuverability and very little in the way of trade assets. So good time to get out. Yeah, I agree. I'm one of the people that think the Rockets have plateaued. Uh, Harden's a great player. I'm a huge fan of Russell Westbrook, always have been. But when you have these guys on the other side of 30, it's more likely than not that they decline a little bit especially Westbrook, who's so reliant on athleticism to yes. succeed at his highest level. Uh, I think I think it's possible, you know, down the line, we do hear that Daryl and Mike just want to get out while the getting was good at this point and, and move on to potentially greener pasture. But let's talk about that, those, those nets, that Nets pasture, so to speak. Uh, you've got a situation in Brooklyn, which is really interesting because of the talent on that roster. Now you add some proven hands to the coaching staff in D'Antoni and Udoka and, of course, Jacques Vaughn still being there. I mean, do you look at these additions as being real boons for Brooklyn? Are there any kind of warning signs when you have you know, a new head coach that you know has to earn authority in that locker room and you bring in a coach in Mike D'Antoni who has earned authority in other locker rooms, more combustible locker rooms, and Jacques Vaughn who already has a faction of players that are probably pretty loyal to him? with that team. How do you view the coaching staff now in Brooklyn? Yeah, look, I mean, Chris, we in the media uh, sometimes over-dramatize these situations a bit. Um, And, you know, a year ago we were saying, uh, how is Frank Vogel going to have any authority in L.A. when he's got Jason Kidd and Lionel Hollins on his staff, two guys who have a lot of head coaching experience, Lionel in particular, and Jason Kidd who has a history of being a bit of a disruptive force and going his own way. And, you know, there was jokes about how long is Frank Vogel even going to be the head coach? Next thing you know, he's the one, you know, with winning the championship and um, shouting awkwardly into a microphone in an empty arena. Um, I, 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 it's, it's a valid question, Chris. Like it's a, it, it, like Steve Nash is a rookie head coach with uh, two strong personalities, two superstars in, in Katie and Kyrie Irving. But Mike D'Antoni, you know, first of all, obviously he and Nash have a pre-existing relationship going back years to, to Phoenix. 
Mike coming in as a resource and as a guy who, you know, he's got his own ego for sure, but he's not like a big, bold personality who's going to like take over the room. I don't think like players are going to be confused about who's in charge. Mike has been around a long time and is, you know, I, I think understands how to, to navigate those, uh, those dynamics. Jacques Vaughn is a little bit different because, yes, there's some carry over there. He's the guy who was elevated when Kenny Atkinson was fired, and there were a lot of fingerprints from the stars on that. And so do, do those guys – would there be a loyalty to Jacques Vaughn? I mean, obviously they appreciate him. Obviously they like what he was doing as, as the interim head coach. But then again, Steve Nash isn't head coach today if not for KD having a relationship with him from their days with the Warriors when Nash was, uh, you know, a skills coach or consulting, whatever he was doing and, and working with KD a lot. So I don't think there's any question about chain of command or who's in charge. I do think it's great when, you, when you're a rookie head coach or a young head coach in this league to have former head coaches on your staff. It, it makes sense. That is, that's the, the, the rational way to go. And, and, and when you're, you know, Nash is kind of an egoless guy. If, if you're not caught up in all of, of those concerns, then you value the experience more than you feel threatened by it. And so I think they'll be fine. And Ime Udoka, you know, has been identified for years as a guy who people, you know, coming off of, of Pop's staff in, in San Antonio, um, most recently with Philly, but, but because of, of the, the Pop, uh, you know, aura about him, has always been looked at as a guy who's going to have a chance to be a head coach in this league. He's, he's had some interviews, and that's coming. Um, but he's, he's, he's another guy, just a really smart uh, assistant coach, smart guy to have on the bench. I think it's a good staff. I, I think it's an excellent staff. And I think just like with a front office, the more talent you add to your coaching staff, the better. And I've said this before. I mean, Mike D'Antoni, as you well know, is not coming to Brooklyn to – usurp the power of Steve Nash or to, you know, to undercut him in any possible way. I would say, though, all this, and you're right, the media does, myself included, does tend to overreact to this type of stuff. But the backdrop to all this is Kyrie. And some of the comments Kyrie has made this offseason, specifically on that podcast where he talked about coach by committee, which was <laughs> a little bit of a bizarre statement. And Howard, my own experience from covering Kyrie pretty close in Boston where he clashed with Brad Stevens. And he might be one of, at most, a handful of players who have ever clashed with Brad Stevens, who have ever really questioned his coaching bona fides or disagreed with him when it came to basketball-related decisions. If Kyrie does that in Brooklyn with a coach that's far less experienced than Brad Stevens, and Steve Nash might turn out to be just as good a coach. We just don't know about that yet. But that could cause some consternation within that team if if Kyrie isn't on board. I think KD will be on board for the reason you mentioned. He, you know, he had to have been on board. I mean, he would work with Nash in Golden State. They had a prior relationship. There really isn't a prior relationship between Kyrie and Steve Nash, except for the fact they played the same position. And maybe that leads to a bond between Kyrie and Steve Nash. But... For right now, that to me is like the the gray area in all this, the unknown in all this. Will Kyrie be fully on board with how Steve Nash coaches that team? If he's not, I mean, will he gravitate towards another coach? Or will, he, will it cause a distraction? Will it cause a problem for a team that needs to gel pretty quickly, especially if this season starts with a truncated training camp and a 72-game season that's kind of molded together with you know double-digit back-to-backs? Uh, that that's the only thing. If it was, if there wasn't that kind of Kyrie dynamic present, 
I probably wouldn't be list this as a topic. It'd probably be a good thing that they added all these pieces of the puzzle. But because Kyrie said what he said and is who he is, uh, it, it, to me, it raises a bit of a red flag. Well, I would say this. Uh, is there any head coach Kyrie has played for in the NBA that he hasn't gone at and made life difficult for? I mean, probably... Unclear, yeah. Unclear. By, Byron, <laughs> Byron Scott, David Blatt. Um, I mean, everybody, right? Ty Lu, Brad Stevens. I mean, I you know, I, in the case of Steve Nash, at least look, I, I like I, far be it for me to try to understand uh, the way that Kyrie's brain works, who he would respect, and and, and, a, and what head coach he wouldn't necessarily ch- challenge or, or undermine. But Steve Nash will be the first two-time MVP he's played for. So there's that. Um, yeah, maybe that makes maybe that makes a difference. Uh, I, you know, we sometimes overstate. F- how NBA friendships work too. And so everybody assumes that Katie and Kyrie will work well together because they're buddies. I, I don't, I don't assume that at all. I, I think that's yet to be seen, but if we're going the benefit of the do, benefit of the doubt uh, approach here, KD clearly values having Steve Nash's head coach and he has the relationship with him, whether by the transitive property, that means that Kyrie will also respect him via KD. I don't know, but um, that's a really, really bad use of the phrase transitive property, by the way, that has nothing to do with it. Kids, <laughs> kids don't listen to sports writers for math lessons. That's on you. Don't listen. Um, I, I, I think though that, that, you know, it, it, it's almost irrelevant who the head coach is. If we're worried about Kyrie, Kyrie's always going to do what Kyrie does. It's more about how the coaching staff deals with those flare ups if they come and, They've got a lot of experiences we just went over. Uh, so I, I think I think they'll be able to, to roll with that. I, I just think more than anything, Chris, it's it, it, there's just some fundamental basketball questions there. Like on the one hand, as you, as you put it, they're, mo- they're possibly the most interesting team in the NBA. But it's also with all these caveats. Like we all will pencil them as a, as, in as a contender in the East immediately. And, and we should. We should because they've earned that based on their talent. But uh, Kyrie played 20 games in his first year in Brooklyn. He's got an injury history. Uh, Kevin Durant hasn't played in a year and a half. And he's got, obviously, he's coming back from the toughest injury there is in, in the Achilles. We don't know what he'll look like. We don't know how well they'll function together. We don't know how Karis LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie, if they're still on the roster and not traded, how they'll adapt to having less control over the offense, the ball in their hands less. Are they re-signing Joe Harris? What will that cost? Is, it, is DeAndre Jordan the starting center because he's got the right friends? Or is it Jared Allen? How will Steve Nash function as a rookie head coach? Like None of these are reasons to dismiss them, but they're just, they are valid questions about a team that on paper looks like a contender but has a lot to prove because it's all new. Did you think, just to finish this, did you think that when Steve Nash retired that head coaching would be – you know, one of his next steps. I mean, you covered him extensively over the years. Uh, did you believe he had that kind of makeup? Because he is, you know, kind of a laid back type of guy. Uh, you know, the, he he succeeded certainly in Phoenix, in Dallas, uh, but you know, in a combustible situation in LA. I know he wasn't playing, but he wasn't playing a significant role in kind of healing the rift between Kobe and and Dwight Howard during that year. Uh, how did you view Nash? Did you look at him as as you know head coaching material? Well, I mean, head coaching material for sure. You know, if, if what you're talking about is basketball acumen 
and communication sure, skills. Sure, definitely has that. Definitely yeah. has that. Right. And 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 the thing is, Chris, we would check off a bunch of really important boxes with him in terms of, of what makes a great head coach, especially in today's NBA. Um, you need to be – and he talks about this all, all the time. Like, I've been impressed in the way he talks about – he sounds a lot like Steve Kerr, which makes sense. I think they're built a little similarly uh, personality-wise, and also he spent some time working with the Warriors. Um, but Steve Nash uses the word connectivity a lot. And he's always talking about, you know, how you, you meaning the, the, the players with each other, the players and the coaches, everybody kind of being on the same page, and that the head coach's role is more of this, you know, collaborative person. So when Kyrie says, and yes, it was still weird that Kyrie said any of us could be the coach on a given day, I mean, Kerr, or, or, um, Kerr would probably too, but Steve Nash would, I think, agree on some level that, listen, we all are smart about the game. We all have thoughts on the game and players see things that the coaches don't. Kerr, again, talks about that with his guys, with Draymond and Steph all the time, that they see things I don't. And he defers to them at times. And I think the smart head coaches in today's game, they understand that. They understand that not, it's not just that players have more authority than they've ever had or the stars do. It's also that these guys are really smart. They see the game from a different perspective while they're in the game, the coach shouldn't necessarily try to constantly impose himself in that old school, top down, you know, authoritarian type of style. It's more, in today's NBA, you're better off as more of as, as the, the collaborator. And I think that Steve Nash, when it comes to his communication skills, his laid back personality, I, that feed that, 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 that does him good. That, that, that serves him well in this kind of situation with two larger than life stars that he's coaching. So I, I, I think he's built for this, whether, I mean, listen, I didn't think he'd be a head coach because most players at his level don't become head coach because coaching is a grind. And if you've been a superstar in this league, you've made a ton of money and you don't need the job. That's why it's usually lesser players or the, the or the film room guy or now college coaches. There's all these other uh, head coaching models in the NBA. It's not usually a high, uh, highly accomplished ex-player because they've already made a ton of money and coaching is harder. <laughs> it's, the hours are crappy um, and you could be fired any given day and everything is your fault. And so uh, I did not see it coming with Nash. Um, I, I can't wait to see how he does. I mean, I think he's, he's going to do fantastically. I think he's going to be great. But um, it, it's not something I necessarily would have predicted. Hey, he's an excellent basketball mind. No question about that. Who who certainly will catch on with the X's and O's of coaching very quickly. It's just the, I wonder if the politics of being a head coach and dealing with a locker room and having to be a voice in that locker room every single day to you know just blend people together. You know, deal with the deal with conflicts. That that's what I'm going to be most interested to watch when it comes to Nash uh, as a head coach. That's why that team is the most interesting team in the league to me. Uh, going into next season. Howard, always great to talk to you, man. Uh, enjoy, you know, poll watching, whatever we're doing the next couple of days. And uh, thanks for joining me, man. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. 
Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.